morning and welcome to Peaks and Troughs, part two. I'm Anna Healy-Fenton, and this morning we're going to look at the hidden life of the harbour. If you're like me, you probably see those huge ships going backwards and forwards every day and don't give them a second thought. But 90% of everything we use in Hong Kong arrives by sea. Without realising it this morning, you've probably used four or five ships already. Your breakfast cereal arrived by ship, so did your clothes... So did the coal to make the electricity to heat your shower. And whether you get in your car or catch a bus this morning, that petrol or diesel too arrived by sea. Life on board ship is tough. More than that, it can be extremely boring. But at best it can be exciting, and at worst, really very dangerous indeed. So I set off to find out what life is really like for those seafarers on board those giant ships. This week I talked to people from various parts of the shipping industry. And I thought we'd start off with dangerous and exciting. Captain Zhou is the Deputy Chief Operations Officer for Hua Kuang, one of Hong Kong's largest privately owned shipping companies. Let's hear about the time that two of his ships were kidnapped by pirates. One was in 2009. One of our bike carriers was sailing from South Africa bound for the India. She was attacked at the early morning, and uh, actually, the old, uh, in the bridge, this glass will be hold, and it's a, a very serious attack. And so, just just to recap, that was a bulk carrier, and the pirates did they? How did they climb up on the ship by a rope ladder, or how did they get onto the ship? Uh, very luckily, uh, eventually, the, this pirate attack was feared. They used the AK-47 just shooting the ship's uh, accommodations and a lot of uh, area in the door and uh, including the bridge, uh, the, the window glass was held by these bullets. But uh, because of the ship, ship's crew are taking a very good uh, uh, prevention uh, measures, so eventually this pilot could not climb up the ships and eventually they give up. So they did not get on board? Yes, so luckily, and the crew all, was all safe during oh, that, that attack. That, that's good. And what happened on the second attack? Yeah, the second attack, that is uh, in what uh, a VLCC tanker was fully what's loaded. That, what's that, Captain Zhou? What's a VLCC tanker? Yes, VLCC. It means a very large crude oil carry. So this is a very big ship? Very big ship, and she's fully loaded with a crude oil and loaded from uh, Saudi Arabia, bonding for Japan. So from going from Saudi to Japan and going yes. via Somali coast? Uh, no, it's via the India coast. India coast. Actually, the, in the, uh, along the, the India coast, ship was attacked uh, again in the early morning time, and the uh, ship was fired by the uh, Paris and the captain have seen this Paris boat chasing the ship, and. Uh, Open a fight towards the ship, and the ship will receive a lot of bullets. So, again, fortunately, all crew was safe, and the crew could manage to escape. And so, eventually, this pirate gave up. So, how did the crew stop the pirates getting on board? Uh, we have a set of the procedures we call a contingency plan. So, in case there is a crew attack, a ship. Uh, master will alert all the crew members. So most of the crew members you will evacuate to the a safe room we call the citadel. But uh, essential crew on duty, they will be uh, do some maneuvering to avoid 
policy, such as start fire hoses to spread water overboard and uh, increase the main speed to the maximum, and the ships will turn to hard stubble to hard port, just to make the uh, ship turning and to create a lot of waves I to see. prevent the pilot boat approaching the ship. Right, so a combination of power hoses speeding mm -hmm. up and turning hard right and hard left to, to discourage them. So then what happened? I understand that your bosses put armed guards on the ships. Uh, yes, and uh, actually we are the, uh, one of the, the very, uh, first company to put armed guards on board. First so, Hong Kong company? Uh, I think we are very, at a very early stage to in, uh, recruit, uh, we employed armed guards on board our ship to safeguard these uh, crews. And how, how do the crew and the families feel about the piracy issue now? And uh, as uh, I'm a seaman before, I can naturally uh, understand that the crew's feeling from their families. They are very concerned about the safety of their relatives. That was Captain Joe telling us about the big difference it's made having armed guards for added security going through pirate areas. The movie Captain Phillips gave a pretty realistic idea of what a pirate attack is like. But there the pirates were very persistent and refused to give up. In reality, the armed guard deterrent really does work. But it comes at quite a cost, as Tim Huxley, CEO of Wa Kwong, explains. The cost of putting a team of four ex-Royal Marines on board a ship for a transit through the high-risk area is about $30,000 every trip. In addition to that, you put razor wire around the ship and have other preventative measures. So yes, it's a cost. And of course, you're going faster to outrun the pirates. So that obviously consumes more fuel. But, it, but that's a cost that you have to be willing to accept. And how do you let the pirates know that you've got guards, armed guards on board? If a suspicious skiff or small boat comes into view, the guards go out onto the bridge wings and show that they are armed. That is normally a sufficient deterrent. If they continue to approach the ship, you fire a warning shot. Uh, but certainly in all of the cases that we've had over the last couple of years, normally just letting those guys know that you've got guys on board by them going out to the bridge wings and showing that they're armed, that's a sufficient deterrent for them to go off and chase after easier fish. Tim Huxley, explaining that life isn't always like the movies. But shipping can still be very dangerous. And Arthur Bowring, who is the managing director of the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association, explained what happened in the case of the 37 seafarers who lost their lives in the first week of the year. This is to do with uh, safety on board ships. It's to do with the way that ships are being run. Um, it's to do with perhaps fatigue. It's to do with um, uh, the carriage of cargoes. Um, 37 seafarers, I think, you're talking about. Um, uh, certainly a number of them, if not all of them, were on the ship that was carrying bauxite, uh, which is a dangerous cargo. It's now known to be a dangerous cargo. It, it can liquefy. This is the ship that um, was out in the rain in Malaysia, and as a result, the That's cargo right. became volatile because it was wet. It didn't become volatile, it, it liquefied. Right. Um, and, and it can happen with fine grain cargoes that become wet or are damp, um, under conditions of vibration, which is what you have on a ship, or the movement of the ship, uh, the car uh, what you get is a process called liquefaction. And the cargo essentially turns into a liquid-like state, uh, making the ship unstable. Hmm. So, 
going to sea is still a dangerous occupation in many respects. So is it a good career for young Hong Kong school leavers thinking of something that they would like to do? I think you need to be careful in calling it a dangerous occupation. Uh, we have 100,000 ships in the world now, um, over 500 gross tons. Um, the number of accidents we have are really not that many. There's more of a risk crossing the streets in Hong Kong than there is uh, going to sail on a ship. Um, shipping is not an unsafe career. Um, it, it's not a dangerous career um, when you compare it to uh, perhaps other uh, facets of life which, which are equally, if not more, dangerous. Um, uh, for a youngster considering a career, it is a fantastic career. Uh, you get responsibility, uh, responsibility at a very young age. Um, uh, the wages, once you get up into the officer's rank, are extremely good. Um, uh, plus, uh, yes, you're away from home for a certain period of time, uh, but when you come home, the time's your own. Uh, you have time off. You can follow other um, interests at that time, which, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, quite honestly, for a youngster nowadays on board a ship, ships are very technically um, uh, equipped, uh, a lot of electronic equipment on board. Uh, many ships have internet access for, uh, for seafarers so they can uh, Skype and text their friends back home. Uh, so actually, it is a very good career. It's a very positive career that leads into many other branches. You don't just become a seafarer nowadays for 50 years. Um, you become a seafarer perhaps for a, for a period of time, um, and then you would come ashore into a myriad of other occupations, maritime law, insurance, shipbroking, um, operating uh, marine superintendency. There's many other careers that are, the next seafarer can follow. Um, and in fact, uh, the Pilots Association in Hong Kong, the Marine Department in Hong Kong, are now seeing, because of the cadet program that we put in place, are now seeing quite a, quite a good number of well-qualified people um, uh, applying for jobs, which, which is tremendous, um, and it shows that the you know the interest uh, of young people in in a good career at sea nowadays. Now, Arthur, you run the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association now, but as a young man, you went to sea yourself, I believe. Would you recommend for your son to to go to sea? <laughs> uh, my son's running a restaurant, the older son, <laughs> and he's very happy doing that. Um, I think that uh, certainly if, um, if they were in the situation that I was, um, I, I was a bass guitarist in a rock band and my father thought that wasn't a career for a, for a young gentleman. Um, so I went to sea with piano certainly for, for eight years. Arthur Baring, explaining why a life at sea is still a great career. Arthur has done sterling work on the Maritime Labour Convention, which has helped to improve the lot and conditions of seafarers everywhere, a long neglected area. The subject of welfare is a key one for seafarers. A significant part of this comes down to the flag, or flag of convenience, under which a ship sails, because the seafarers will operate under the rules of the flag of the ship, of whatever country that is. The Reverend Stephen Miller is the chaplain of the Mission to Seafarers in Hong Kong, and he's something of a cross between Santa Claus and social services, bobbing about on his launch in the harbour every day, visiting ships as they come into Hong Kong and bringing with him a raft of goodies ranging from football DVDs to phone cards and newspapers for the seafarers on board. Stephen explains the significance of the flags. Yes, every ocean-going vessel um, 
has a flag, so it has a nationality. Uh, and depending on the nationality depends upon the law under which that ship operates. So, for example, if the ship has got a Hong Kong flag, then literally the ship is under Hong Kong law. So everything we take for granted in Hong Kong, such as social services, such as um, sick leave and uh, rights uh, that we have under Hong Kong law, would also apply on a Hong Kong flagged ship. The same would be for a German flagship or for a UK flagship. Um, however, there are other types of flags, which are called flags of convenience, which are um, slightly cheaper for ship owners to operate under, and those would be typically Panama, Liberia, Marshall Islands. Um, and there, the, the standards aren't necessarily any less, but um, the expense for registering the ship under that flag and the expense for operating the ship under that flag would be less. So on your daily tours around the harbour visiting ships where you take football DVDs, phone cards, newspapers and all sorts of things that might be of use and interest to guys of all kinds of nationalities on these ships, how different are the standards that you'd see, say, on a Liberian flagship to a, an Australian flagship? Well, I think if you'd asked me that question three or four years ago, um, the difference would be quite dramatic. Uh, the standards would have been a lot less on the flags of convenience ships, such as um, Panama, Liberia, uh, and obviously Australia uh, would be a very high standard. But uh, today, after the um, introduction of the Maritime Labour Convention in August 2013, we see that uh, nearly 80% of the ships come under that convention and the playing field has levelled out so that uh, there are now minimum standards right across the board in terms of seafarers, food, accommodation, pay standards um, and how the ship actually operates with the seafarers on board. So things have improved because they weren't that good, were they, in the past? Things have, um, have been different depending on part different parts of the world and often that's to do with the regulation of the port. So in a port such as Hong Kong, where we get ships from all over the world, uh, we used to see problems on board uh, vessels, certainly with flags of convenience, and sometimes we'd see problems on vessels um, which had national flags, but those standards were slightly lower. So what sort of problems are we talking about? Uh, the common problem would have been um, wages not being paid on time, uh, sometimes very sometimes months um, in the worst case uh, eight or nine months uh, seafarers have not received the pay in Hong Kong so they'd be stuck in Hong Kong on board a ship with no money and presumably no food and what would have happened to them or what does happen to them well, what happens in Hong Kong is if the ship is in that sort of situation the chances are the seafarers are not the only people who are owed money um, there'll be other uh, other people such as um, ships chandlers, such as fuel providers. Um, so generally what happens in cases like that is that a legal case will be put to arrest the vessel and for those people who are owed money to claim the money back from by the sale of the ship. That was the Reverend Stephen Miller. It seems if your ship is going to be arrested, Hong Kong is about the best place to have it happen to you because Stephen and his team will be there providing the next best thing to social services. But ultimately, it all comes down to money. Here's Stephen again. Uh, ship owners have sought to reduce their costs over many, many years, and that has led to uh, more 
automation, um, which has led to less seafarers on board the ships. So when I started working uh, with the mission 16 years ago, uh, it would, wouldn't be unusual to find 30, 35 seafarers on board the ship. Um, now, most of the container ships that come into Hong Kong, you would find between 14 and 18 uh, men on the ship, and they'll be divided into three shifts to work. So they'll work the 12 till 4 watch, the 4 till 8 watch, or the 8 to 12 watch. So for a typical seafarer, if they're on board the ship and they're working 12 till 4, that means at midnight they come on to watch, uh, and then they stop at 4 o'clock in the morning, and then they have eight hours rest, uh, in which time they have to eat and sleep, um, and then get ready to come back on duty again for 12 o'clock midday, and then they'd work till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, to most people listening to this, it doesn't sound too bad, really. So you're talking four on, eight off, four on? Four on, eight off, four on, eight off, seven days a week. Indeed, that might not sound too bad. But imagine if you worked four hours on, eight hours off, four hours on again, and on a ship you come off duty to find that your colleagues are either sleeping or on duty. So where are you going to go? In days gone by, they would tend to congregate in, in the mess room, but these days many ships have internet on board, so a lot of seafarers would go online in their rooms, increasing their sense of isolation. We take having the internet for granted, but at sea... It can be a good and a bad thing. Tim Huxley has very strong views about this. It really is a double-edged sword, because whilst uh, connectivity and being in touch with uh, loved ones, friends while you're at sea, it sounds a great thing. The point is, if you do have a family problem and you learn about it when you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean, uh, there's not a lot you can do about it uh, except worry and probably then not really do your job uh, in, as well as you should do. Uh, and in many ways, you know, you need the support of organisations like the Missions to Seafarers and being able to deal with it on onshore. Uh, that that makes life a lot easier. So, and also, of course, the internet. It's uh, all of these things. They are a massive distraction, as you see on shore in all walks of life. Uh, it actually cuts down social interaction. I'm uh, very much against people coming off their watch uh, and disappearing to their cabin and uh, going onto their laptop. Uh, you know, you'd like to actually have more social interaction. Uh, and that doesn't happen when everybody is running off to go online. So what you're seeing is guys finishing their, their watch and disappearing into their cabins and not all getting together and talking the way they used to. That's certainly true. Uh, and I think that social interaction on board is a very important part of life at sea. Otherwise, you really can become quite isolated. Uh, you know, you can't, as I say, expect people to be cheerful and friendly and getting together, getting along together all the time. But certainly that social interaction, having a meeting place and see... Ships used to have bars on board. Now then, OK, more, all ships now pretty much are, are dry. Really? No alcohol at all? Uh, that is the case on virtually every ship. How long has that been the case? Uh, well, really, that sort of... Uh, those rules, drug and alcohol policies, particularly came into force after 1989 and the Exxon Valdez spill, uh, when... There, it was found that the master in charge of the ship at the time uh, was over the limit, uh, and that was a contributory cause to one of the worst oil spills ever. And after that, uh, you know, a lot of oil companies, uh, major charters, will actually have strict DN drug and alcohol policy on board. That was Tim Huxley. So it seems you can't even get a drink on board anymore. 
The issue of the internet is one that's becoming increasingly pressing for ship owners in particular. Social media has become an increasingly controversial subject on board ships. Sadly, there was an incident where Facebook directly or indirectly contributed to the suicide of one seafarer, as Stephen explains. The good ship owners are, are gradually, uh, as the technology becomes cheaper, are gradually providing more and more internet access to their seafarers. Um, our experience has been that the access will be limited to cabin space um, and not available where the seafarer is physically working. So you don't want him on watch on his mobile phone? Exactly. Um, Of course, what will happen typically there is most people would spend their time looking at their smartphone rather than looking out the window on watch. Right, right. And any other issues that arise from, from this? I assume this would mean they would spend more time on their laptops than talking to each other. It does tend to drive seafarers back into their cabins. Um, it does mean that the community on board the ship is, is becoming less. Um, but the biggest problem is, of course, that because there are so few seafarers on board a vessel mm. now, and often they're from different countries, mm. sometimes up to four or five different countries on board one vessel, mm. um, it does mean that the only communication they tend to have with, uh, with their friends and family won't be a telephone call, it will probably be a, a Skype or it will be um, uh, MSN Messenger or it will be a, a friend, Yahoo Friendster um, or all the new apps that are available nowadays. Um, and the danger of that is um, that their friends or their, their other uh, crewmates don't necessarily know what's going on. Mm. And so where it will be a letter used to be received on board the ship and, and often that letter will be shared um, now, with Facebook and all the other technology, um, it's sometimes quite hard for the captain, for example, to know what's going on in the minds of some of his crew. Mm, you've had a, a, a very sad case of a suicide, I understand. Yes, it was a, a particularly sad case because the, the chief officer involved had been, been involved in an accident. Um, a ship had collided with a fishing vessel off the coast of China. Um, and it was discovered two days later... Uh, he was discovered two days later uh, he'd hung himself in the cabin Uh, now what had happened in between the incident and between uh, his suicide had been a long string of of communication between himself and his wife on Facebook Uh, and some of the things that were said in perhaps in haste uh, and were said with perhaps ill judgment uh, led to this poor chap's suicide so sometimes IT and communication is a good thing uh, but sometimes um, it's not such a good thing. Maybe uh, if, we got, if we'd gone back ten years, uh, if it had been a letter that he'd written to his wife, maybe that letter would never have been posted. And equally, maybe she wouldn't have sent uh, the message in such a, such a manner that caused him to take his own life. Mm. So that old rule about never send an email... In, when you're in an emotional state, is still good advice? Well, I think it's always good to keep it in a draft and, uh, and, and write it and then look at it the next day. Yeah. Um, but, of course, we all want immediate communication. Uh, and mm. it's, it's wonderful when that communication puts seafarers in touch with their families and it's good news. Uh, but when it's bad news, uh, we still have to be careful how, how that's dealt with. And so we're mm. very mindful when we go on board the ship's here in Hong Kong, that often there are all sorts of things going on uh, back at home, whether that's in Romania or Russia or Ukraine, um, particularly in Ukraine at the moment, with some of the news that's coming from there. 
and or whether it be in the Philippines, for example, last year uh, with the disaster that happened in Tacloban. Um, it, mm. We always have to be very wary uh, of asking questions or, dra- or drab questions. Or, I'm sure your family are okay, because sometimes that isn't the case. Yes. Well, some very real problems, I believe, for the Crimea seamen. They're now stateless because of all the political unrest. That's right. I mean, obviously, they, they did have Ukrainian passports before. But when, um, when Crimea was taken up again by Russia, uh, those seafarers from Crimea, when they went returned home, uh, no longer had passports because the Ukrainian passports were cancelled. Uh, so that meant for a, a, quite a great swathe of uh, former Ukrainian seafarers, they were unable to travel until Russia provided them travel documents. And for, mm. for many seafarers, that hasn't happened yet. So they're literally stateless. They're waiting at home, and hopefully, um, because of all the problems, all the troubles, uh, that seems to be the last thing on the agenda from anyone in the administration there. So there's no escape from Vladimir Putin, even on the high seas. In spite of Hong Kong's long and rich maritime history, it seems that local kids don't want to go to sea anymore. I wonder why this is. After all, a ship's captain or a chief engineer can earn 8,000 US dollars a month from as young as 30. That's not bad going. So why do they want to stay on land? Maybe it's family values. Maybe it's lack of information about the seafaring life. Or maybe it's considered downright old-fashioned, the sort of thing that your dad might have done. Who knows? But local captain Willie Cheng wouldn't change his seafaring career for anything. In Hong Kong, we still shortage of the seamen. Because the young generation, they they are not they they don't feel very interesting uh, of the seaman's life to join as a seaman. They don't want to go away for a long time uh, because they have to 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 go away from their family. Mm. And the point is, the job opportunity here in Hong Kong, you have many of the job you can you can choose you can pick up. Yes. So. Uh, even though they they don't have uh, compared with the salary, the wages, although as a seaman they got a more more better salary, but they have to go away. That was local sea captain Willie Jang. Well, this week I've met some very interesting people and done some incredible things, including, thanks to Stephen, clambering up the side of a huge tanker on a rope ladder, which I never thought I would do, and I never want to do again. But if you do have time, look up the Hong Kong Mission to Seafarers and see the very special work that they do. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be looking at the growing problem of wine fraud. Until then, have a great week. 